We will return to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 this week, uh, starting in verse 7. We'll read through verse 15. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there so that you can follow along as we study this passage together. Uh, once again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. Um, before we read, however, I do want to give you a quick update uh, just from the leadership here at FAC. Um, you, you may or may not know this, but for almost a year now, our elders have been talking a lot about vision uh, here at FAC. We've been praying, uh, we've been reading, we've been uh, discussing boldly together, uh, really asking the question at our meetings, what is God particularly calling us to as a church body as we seek the fulfillment of the Great Commission? What is our role in this small corner of the earth uh, in regards to the Great Commission. And as we seek to cast vision, what we're really seeking is to build a foundation here that will dictate how we will do ministry for many years to come and, and how we will do ministry, what decisions we'll make and what decisions we won't make. And I've used the illustration in the past. It's a good one. I'll use it again, but it's like we're building a house. The foundation of a house is the most important part, but it also takes the most time to build. There's nothing glamorous about the foundation. It's just a bunch of brick and mortar. Uh, but without it, the rest of the house fails to stand. Now, for the most part, you don't live in the foundation. You live in the frame of, of the house. Um, all of our programs, all of our ministries here, all of our events are the frame of the house. That's where we live. That's where we do ministry. That's what everyone sees and experiences and enjoys. But we need to make sure that we have a proper foundation. We need to ensure that there is a vision underneath the house, underneath the ministries and the programs which drives their purpose. And that's what vision is. It really should inform why we do what we do here. Because there are a million good things that we could do as a church. I get ideas all the time. There's several millions of them, things that we could pursue in this world. And our vision will help um, take that broad scope and tighten it. And it will help us determine which good things are we going to pursue. And so we've been in this process for quite some time with our elders uh, but within the last few months, our leadership has determined that we would like a little bit of help uh, crossing the finish line. And so as an update, we've actually partnered with a, an outside source, a Christian coaching ministry called Flourish Coaching. And they have a formal process that we're walking through right now with an envisioning team. And that envisioning team is made up of actually eight congregants that have been selected by our uh, elders. Uh, and they've begun their work um, and uh, through this process, this formal process, we're actually seeking to learn about mainly about two things. First, we want to learn about Erie, the community at which God has placed us. And so we're going to conduct what's called a community study. Uh, but we're also looking to learn about ourselves as well. Uh, we want to learn about FAC. And so we're going to do that by conducting what's called a congregational study. Um, mainly for our purposes this morning, I just want to update you, uh, keep you in the loop on that. But uh, I would ask that you participate in this process with us by praying. 
Uh, I would encourage you daily, put it in your prayer journals and your calendars to just pray for the future of FAC and the, and the vision that we're trying to develop here. And in the weeks to come, we will actually ask you to participate in, in two different surveys. There's going to be something called a core values audit where we're going to learn what do we value as a church. And uh, we're also going to learn about our own spiritual gifts. Uh, we're we're going to ask our congregants to take a spiritual gift survey, if you will, uh, so that we can learn about the makeup of our body and, and what gifts do we have here at FAC? What are we good at? What, is God ha- what has he supernaturally given us? And this should inform what we're doing. And so uh, be on the lookout for both of those things in the coming weeks, in the coming months, uh, as we do this congregational study. And um, should any of you have any questions about this, please don't hesitate to ask. We're very excited about what FAC has, in, uh, what God has in store for FAC, and each of you play a significant role in that. And so, uh, before we go to God's Word this morning, I'd actually lift, I'd like to lift this matter up to God in prayer um, and, and model that for us. So, would you pray with me as we pray specifically just for FAC and the vision that we are uh, working to establish here? Heavenly Father, we know that there is no vision here on earth um, that is uh, worth it unless it comes from you, Lord. Uh, That that every vision, every human concoction of strategy and plans will fall short um, unless they are divinely given by you, Father. And so we do come to you and we ask for discernment. We ask for wisdom. Your word promises, Father, that if we... Uh, ask for wisdom, you'll give it to us. And so as we uh, seek out what you have in store for FAC for the many years to come, Lord, we do ask for wisdom uh, from our leadership and from our congregants and for this envisioning team, Lord. And we do ask that you would bless our efforts and that we would bear much fruit uh, for many years to come. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and go to God's word now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 15. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. A brief prayer before we begin. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past Friday, in the wee hours of the morning, was the opening ceremony of the Olympics in Tokyo. And now, 
for the next two weeks, we will have the opportunity to see the full range of athleticism on display. Um, these games that happen every four years give us an opportunity as spectators to really witness the physical peaks of strength and agility and speed and fitness. These athletes are really physical specimens for what the human body is capable of. And it's truly remarkable. I don't know about you, but I, I get so much enjoyment at watching them at their craft. But the unfortunate and inevitable reality is that every single one of those athletes who have wholly devoted themselves to their disciplines will one day fail to compete and qualify because of their human shortcomings. There will be a day when they aren't strong enough. There will be a day when they are not fast enough. They will be, there will be a day when they are not smart enough or sharp enough to keep up with the competition. And that is because of the very nature of what it means to be human. To be human, to, to, to be mortal, is to be weak. Weakness goes with the territory of the human experience. And if this is the case for Olympic athletes, then it is certainly the case for us as human spectators. It doesn't take much convincing for you to agree with me that we are but weak and fragile shells. And not just our body, but also our minds and our emotions. All of the aspects that make up the self are fragile, are weak. Paul, here in our text this morning, actually uses an object lesson to drive this point home by referring to humans as jars of clay. That we are vessels, earthen vessels, if you will, vessels made from the clay of earth. Clay, in the earliest civilizations, was the material of choice for all sorts of home goods because of how cheap and easy it was to manufacture. And so jars of clay if I could give you a modern example, were, were the Tupperware containers of the first century world. Uh, no one really placed a great value uh, on jars of clay because their primary purpose was for convenience. And it wasn't a very big deal. It wasn't earth shattering when these jars were broken because they were cheap and they were very easy to replace. And they would break often because of how fragile they were. They weren't particularly known for their durability. Their lifespan was um, significantly shorter than other more expensive materials like ivory or brass or, or iron. And the reason why Paul uses the illustration uh, of, of jars of clay here is, is just that. Paul isn't drawing attention to the lack of value of the jars of clay, even though that's true. Paul uses the illustration to point the reader to its lack of structural integrity. We've got to remember that here in the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the issues of weakness and suffering. And here Paul makes the claim that we as humans are like these jars of clay that are so prone to breaking. It doesn't take much 
in this world to bring us to our knees in despair. But the wonderful thing about being a believer in Jesus or in Paul's context and point of view, being a gospel minister, a worker in the, in the gospel is that when you peek inside the jar of clay and see what the container carries, what it holds, there is this beautiful treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And now, according to Paul, uh, what is the treasure in jars of clay that we have? Well, it's what Paul just wrote about in verses 1 through 6, which we looked at two weeks ago. The, the treasure specifically is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ as the full revelation of God. That's what he's talking about in the first six verses that, that immediately precedes this. It's, it's the knowledge that we have of the glory of God as represented in the face of Jesus. That is the treasure. And this treasure, according to verses one through six, is transformational. It's creational. God spoke light into existence at creation. And just as God spoke light into existence, he speaks light into our hearts, which is his revelation of himself as Jesus. It's creational. It's powerful. And it's been entrusted to fragile and weak human beings who are nothing more than clay pots who break at a moment's notice. What an odd concept. Why is this so? Why does God function in this way? Why not entrust this wonderful treasure to vessels that are powerful and that are strong enough and can hold up in the middle of the storm? Right? Ministry is difficult and it's arduous. So why was Paul not transformed into a jar of iron? We had a jar of iron for the safekeeping of this treasure. If this treasure is so precious and we want to keep it safe, wouldn't we, wouldn't we just lock it up in a steel safe? Right, right? Wouldn't that be much better? Well, Paul gives the answer. But he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God places this powerful treasure of the gospel in frail jars of clay so that there's no question as to the origin of such power, where the source of such power comes from. Now with this verse right here, it's very clear that Paul is setting up a contrast between the treasure and between the the, the clay, between the jars of clay. And the contrast... uh, is not necessarily the value. It's not necessarily the cost, even though that is there. There is a contrast there. The main contrast that Paul wants us to see here is in its strength, is in its power. We see that the treasure, the gospel, is in no need of a secure, strong, and powerful vessel because the treasure itself The gospel itself is secure and strong and powerful. It doesn't need something to keep it. It holds up on its own. 
And on the contrary, should such a treasure be placed within strong, durable, and capable vessels, there's a chance that people, being ignorant that we are, would actually misplace our trust. If, if Paul was not a jar of clay and instead a jar of iron, people may put their hope and trust and faith in Paul. Even Paul in his own sin could have been fooled that he somehow overcame by his own strength. And so God chooses the weak in order that people would be drawn not to a human, but to himself. And he has no interest in drawing people to anybody else other than himself. Now, there's two quick points of application here for us in this object lesson that Paul uses. First, we here sitting here today, we need to surrender that I can do it mentality. Right? That, that I've got this. I, I, can, I can overcome this thought. Stiff upper lip, I'm going to reach down and I've got the strength. I can muster up all the strength and I can do this. We have to surrender that because the truth of the matter is we can't. When we are faced with the weight of the broken world, we are hopeless. We are hopeless to stand under our own strength. It will crush us because we are no more than jars of clay. We can't do it. Ah, but we know somebody who can. We know something who, that, that can. We, we possess a treasure in the gospel that has a surpassing power. A surpassing power means it's immeasurable. It, it is so off the charts. It is an off the charts power that comes from God. That's the first point of application. I can't do this, but he can. So I lean on his power. Second, since the treasure is not just God, but more specifically the revelation of God, it's, it's, it's the gospel, we actually see that the gospel has practical implications for the daily life of the believer. There are some people who erroneously assume that the gospel is really only useful for the non-believer and has no further, further value apart from our salvation. They assume that once we come to a saving knowledge of the gospel, that the work of the gospel is finished, that it's complete, that it is, there's no further implications for my, for my life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Right? Paul explains here that the gospel is not just a past event, but it's actually a present reality in our life, which is why it's wise as Jerry Bridges, a late Christian author, would say that we actually should preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. It needs to stay front and center in our daily lives. Because our relationship with the gospel is not just an intellectual relationship is something that we know to be true, but it's also experiential. We experience life and we experience the fracture, fractured world in a new way in the light of the treasure that we possess. And Paul explains what the experience of the believer looks like, like in, in verses 8 and 9. 
He poetically shares four famous phrases that really share all the same concept, yet from four different kind of experiences. And you'll notice that the degree of severity increases with each experience listed. Let's go ahead and walk through them together in verses 8 and 9. First, we are afflicted, and not just afflicted, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Another word for afflicted is squeezed. There is a pressure against us. There's a sort of pressure on us. And because it's put on in every way, basically in all aspects of life, there is pressure. There is no single area in our life where we don't feel the pressure, where we don't feel the weight of the world. It's a pressure that just lingers about. It's there when you wake up, the moment you wake up, and it remains as you fall asleep. Yet in spite of the pressure, the affliction, the squeezing of life, there seems to be a resilience here. We are pressured, we are afflicted, we are hard-pressed, but not to the point where there's no way out. We have this image of bending, but not breaking. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's the first one. Second, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Living in a fallen world doesn't just affect our bodies, it affects our minds as well. And life is a perplexing thing, right? Because to watch a dysfunctional world, a world that is broken, try to function is a confusing thing. Many times our experience leaves us with more questions than it does answers. Now the word perplexed here, it means to be at a loss. It means to be in doubt, to to really not know what to do or, or not know how to act. It is when you see the latest headlines flash across your phone screen as an update and you look at it and you read the story and you just say, well, I just, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know. I'm at a loss. I don't know what to think anymore. We are at a loss for what to do or say, yet we are not driven to despair. There's actually a word play here in the original language, right? We are are befuddled, but not bewildered is how other authors would put it. Or in other words, we are at a loss, but we are never utterly at a loss. Although Paul may have been at a loss about how to proceed, he never, as we would put it, went off the deep end. A good way to think about this is that the picture that we see it's cloudy, but we have a clear head. We have a clear mind. That's the second one. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. Third, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. The word for persecuted here actually means to pursue in a hostile manner. And somebody is chasing after you with the intent to hurt you. This word is commonly used to describe how a predator tracks its prey. And Paul knew what it was like to be in the position of the prey, to be persecuted, to be pursued. And even we as believers, we are hunted. Peter gets this. He mentions this in 1 Peter 5.8 when he writes that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour We are in the enemy's crosshairs. And that's a very lonely place to be. 
but we are not forsaken. In other words, we are not abandoned. Yes, we have a great adversary who pursues us, but we also have a greater advocate who is by our side, who is with us. When we studied through Acts together, the first half of Acts, we saw how Paul was pursued from city to city by hostile groups. Yet through it all, he recognized that God never abandoned him. That God never left his side. God never left Paul behind for the enemy to pick off. In fact, if you examine the promises of God from Scripture, God has promised not to abandon his people. So yes, we may be persecuted, we may be pursued, but we are not forsaken. That's number three. And then finally, number four, we are struck down, but not destroyed. To be struck down means to be thrown to the ground. There were times in Paul's persecution where he was pursued and his enemies did catch him and they did harm him. Paul was thrown down, but he quickly got back up on his feet. If, if Paul's life were a boxing match, we, we would say that Paul was knocked down, but not knocked out. We are struck down, but we aren't destroyed. Now, the first part of the concept that all four of those phrases point to is that, don't miss this, we do indeed experience hardship. Christianity is not escapism. Right? We will experience hardship. In our weakness, we face a broken world. There is just no way around that. Very rarely will we be miraculously delivered out of our circumstances. Can it happen? Yes. Has it happened? Yes. But by and large, the normal experience of the believer is to experience hardship. That's the first part of the concept communicated here. However, the second part of the concept that Paul communicates is that while we can't escape it, the outcome is not what you would expect, right? Because if you think about it here, the implication here is that these situations typically under normal circumstances do lead to those results. Being afflicted, being hard pressed does lead to the experience of being crushed, being perplexed, does lead to a state of despair. Being persecuted or being pursued does leave us feeling abandoned. And being struck down does lead to destruction. Think about it in the context, once again, in the terms of the jars of clay. If you throw a jar of clay down to the ground, if you strike it down, what's going to happen? It's going to break. It's going to be crushed. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to shatter into several pieces. Paul, however, says, I, as a jar of clay, I am struck down. But shockingly, I'm not destroyed. And once again, it has nothing to do with the quality of the strength of the jar. It has everything to do with the powerful treasure that the jar holds. It's not our own strength that holds me up, but the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we should not walk about this life just trying to avoid the reality of our weakness and ignore the fragile nature of life. Don't avoid it, but faithfully walk through it by the power of the gospel that we carry with us. 
Endure it. Persevere through it. Now you may wonder if Christianity is not escapism, if it's not going to solve all of my problems in the here and now, if it's not going to increase my wealth and increase my health and make me strong, if I'm still a weak jar of clay, then what's the point? Where is the value in that? Paul explains, however, in verse 10 to 12, that when we faithfully endure in our weakness, rather than to try to escape our, our hardship, something wonderful happens. Something beautiful happens. Something is actually manifested. Something is made visible. You see, there is a function to this in verses 10 through 12. Paul writes that as we are given over to death, right, as we experience the present reality of death, of being mortal, the life of Jesus is actually manifested. It's made visible for all to see. The crushing circumstances of life allows the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine through. The gospel powerfully expresses itself when we go through suffering and come face to face with our weakness. And here's why. Paul in these verses actually links our experience with suffering and weakness and death with that of Christ. He says we share in the death of Christ. Or in other words, we share in the process of dying with Christ. And the picture that Paul paints here is not of the death of Jesus, is not just the moment that Jesus died. He's not referring to just a singular event of Jesus dying. No, he is stressing the ongoing nature of the process. He is focusing on Jesus' humanity. When we think of Jesus dying, our minds can't help but think of the cross. But Paul has a much broader view in mind here. He, he has in mind the hardships and the frustrations that Jesus, that Jesus had in, in his entire ministry. And in his entire life, the disappointments, the exhaustion, the, the constant harassment from his from his enemies, the constant critique from his followers, the continuous demands from the crowds, the mocking and the jeers and the loneliness. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And not just at the cross, but through his entire ministry. Yet Paul reminds the reader that God's most glorious power was displayed only after Jesus willingly gave himself over to the process of death in his humanity. Jesus walked through death's door, the full process of dying, so that God's power would be exhibited at the resurrection. So Paul says that if God's power was revealed and displayed through the terrible circumstances that Jesus walked through, then why would that be any different of us as his followers? You see, this is the point in Paul writing this. It's not necessarily a call to suffering. He's not saying go suffer more, but it is a call to accept suffering as a vital part of gospel ministry. Not to reject it or avoid it, but to embrace the value that it has in this life of the believer and those that surround them. Paul absolutely claims here that our weakness is an essential component 
in the display of God's power. And this is why he writes, because the main problem in the church of Corinth was that they were quick to reject suffering and weakness. That they refused to consider it as a part of the Christian walk. Remember, they were influenced by these itinerant preachers who claimed that God's power was most prominently displayed through signs and wonders and miracles and success. They were under the impression that weakness was inconsistent and had no place in the spirit-filled life. And there are still people today who buy into this concept. The American church is not that far from the church in Corinth. There are people that buy in to this concept of a health and wealth gospel, and they just want to sort of skip straight to the resurrection part. They want to claim rewards, and they want to claim inheritance in the here and now in this life. They want to jump right over the part about dying. And even furthermore, it's very difficult for Americans particularly to accept the idea that Paul writes about because we, we embrace the ideals of strength and we embrace the ideals of power and comfort and security. And even as we come face to face with death, there are many people that are uncomfortable when a loved one dies and we're forced to consider not just their mortality, but my own mortality, people grow uncomfortable because they don't like considering the ramifications of their own death, even though it is an inevitable event. It will happen to all of us. Yet we push it off to the side. Even when it happens, we gloss it over. We pretty it up, if you will, because we don't want to think about it. We try to renounce weakness and renounce suffering and even death. But once again, Jesus was a man of sorrows. He had to willingly walk through death to get to the resurrection. And Paul says that as Jesus had to walk that road, we willingly follow him down that path. If suffering is the vehicle in which God's power is displayed, then we as believers need to get in the car. But in doing so, we absolutely reveal the life of Jesus as a result. God's power is primarily revealed through our weakness. That is the function in this passage. But there is also a faith element here that Paul explains in verses 13 through 15. See, Paul's foundation was in the past, but the focus of his faith is in the future here in these final verses that we'll look at. What ultimately makes it worth it and what ultimately assures Paul that everything is going to be okay, that it's worth it to boldly proclaim, even if he's going to take shots, is because he has a confidence that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. It's a promise that the same power that raised Jesus is the same power that we hold in these jars of clay is the same power that will raise us on that last day. And so in the here and now, we live in an overlapping age where the kingdom of God is both here, but not yet here in all of its fullness. We just have an appetizer in this life for what it will look like in the future. And we patiently wait. 
And we eagerly wait for that day. But until that day, in order to not lose heart, our mind's eye must remain fixed on that day. Our futures in the presence of Christ should dictate how we live in the here and now and what choices we make in the here and now. Paul says, I am willing to carry about the dying of Jesus in my body because I know of a future resurrection. Paul says, I am willing to face all of the affliction and all of the confusion and all of the persecution and all of the knocking down and hostility because there will be a day where God's promise of resurrection will come to fruition. We'll get more into that next week about fixing our eyes on that day, but it's important to know this week, the driving point I want to make here is that we have a God that we can trust not just for our future resurrection, but through our weakness. Why? Because he's done it before. When going through any sort of dangerous situation, it always puts us at ease when we consult and depend on people who have been through it before us. We we desire proof. We desire assurance that we will come out the other side. How, How do I know that I'm going to be okay? I'm going to step through this dangerous door. And you look to the person and you say, can you provide me proof? Can you provide me assurance that I'm going to make it through, that I'm going to come out on the other side? And that person can say with confidence that your proof, your assurance lies in the fact that I've done this before. I've done this before so you can trust me. Paul's ultimate proof that he's going to come out of death's door on the other side that he can endure all of this process of dying is that Jesus has gone before him. That Jesus is just one step ahead of Paul. And this is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is so central to our faith. Not just at the point of salvation, but daily. To trust Jesus and not merely to trust him for my salvation, but it's to trust him with my entire life. Every circumstance, small or large, I entrust to his care. And there is no experience that life can throw us that we cannot endure as jars of clay if we carry this powerful treasure of the gospel message. And ultimately on that day, when we do come face to face with death, our final enemy, We know with confidence that we will come out the other side. And so I have to wonder, there may be jars of clay in this very room that do not have such treasure. And as they experience life and come face to face with death, they wonder, how am I ever going to get through this? How can I ever endure? The secret is in the treasure that we possess. The gospel message that Jesus Christ was sent by God, is fully God, and loves you so, so much that he gave his life for you and was resurrected on the third day so that you may have life and not just life, but life to the fullest. Can you walk out of these doors in confidence that you as a jar of clay possess such a powerful treasure? Please do not leave here this morning without talking to to somebody about what this means, what this looks like, about putting your trust 
in Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, while we do still experience uh, this life as a jar of clay and life in all of its brokenness, Lord, we have a hope here uh, that we can endure and we can persevere, not because of our own strength, but because of your power. I thank you, Father, that you have loved us and that you care about your creation so much as to reveal yourself to us. We are broken, we are blinded, uh, we are fractured, Father, and we cannot see you unless you lift the veil. And so we would ask that this morning, Lord, should there be anybody in this room who wonders how a believer grieves with hope and how they handle such hardship? Would you open their eyes to see that it's not because they're strong enough or sharp enough or stable enough, Lord, but it's because they have a treasure in the gospel because they know you and they know you through Jesus. Would that happen this morning, Lord? And would they put their faith and trust in you? And in your holy name I pray, amen.